Have you ever wanted to learn the principles of effective periodization? Imagine if you could, with a few simple keystrokes on your laptop, create the ultimate program for your athletes, regardless of their goals or current ability level. The truth is that with all the resources available to you today, periodization can be an overwhelming subject to learn. How many sets and reps for hypertrophy? What about pure strength? How do I work in speed development? When does agility come into play? How do things change if my athletes are in season? You do not have to be able to read the Russian literature on periodization in order to understand and reap the benefits of proper program design. In fact, once you understand a couple key principles, you'll be on the fast track to writing world-class training programs, and that's exactly what we're talking about today. My name is Colby Nepp, and each week I bring you a one-on-one, in-depth interview with leading experts in the field of strength and conditioning. In this practical, structured, and time-efficient podcast, it's my job to connect you with the knowledge and experience of world-class coaches so that you can learn from their stories, become a better coach, and build champions regardless of your current situation and resources. Bottom line, my listeners get serious ROI on their time spent here. Our guest today is Karsten Jensen, a 20-year strength and conditioning vet and creator of the Flexible Periodization Method. And in today's episode, you will learn the main issues with traditional periodization, how to implement the Flexible Periodization Method into your current training cycles, and the six parameters of effective periodization. There's a lot to cover in today's episode, so let's get right to it. What's going on, everybody? Coach Colby here, coming at you with another episode of the Strength and Performance Podcast, brought to you by TrainHeroic.com. I'm joined on the line by Karsten Jensen, and today we're going to be talking about flexible periodization for athletic performance. So just a quick background here on Mr. Karsten. He's coached and consulted with athletes and coaches in all sports, baseball, beach volleyball, speed skating, gymnastics, soccer, powerlifting, and track and field. And he joins the show with 20 years experience as a strength and conditioning coach. Check out this background. Master's in science and exercise physiology, level two Czech practitioner, level three Czech holistic lifestyle coach, and also he's a certified personal trainer. I did some digging into his website and uh, just kind of researching for the show. I came across a really, really awesome quote that I think applies to the majority of strength coaches out there. Carson says, strength coaches do not need to be world-class athletes in order to work with world-class athletes. They need to be world-class strength coaches. So I'm honored to have Carson on the show. Mr. Jensen, fill in any holes from the intro and tell us your story. No, you did great, Colby. Thank you for the intro. That's probably the best intro I've ever experienced. <laughs> Thank but, you. You know, I just read it from a Word document here. So, <laughs> yeah. No, no, good job. I think that maybe the only other thing I, I want to say about it, that my initial interest in strength and conditioning came out of doing track and field in a second year in university, where my first clocked 100 meter was 14 seconds and 28 so you know that that's extremely slow. Okay, I was going to say, give me some perspective. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> extremely slow? slow. So if you're like an average talent, I think you do below 12 the first time you try. And then depending on how much talent, how much you train, you'll take it down from there. But I got from 14 plus to below 13 in about two years of training. And then I got injuries in my feet and I stopped. But it makes me interested in strength and conditioning. Because I, I started thinking, what kind of training does it take to make a tortoise into a hare or at least a faster tortoise? It's <laughs> funny. And so after that experience, like when did you really dive into strength conditioning? 
it was about that time in 1992 where I started getting that interest and started reading all the books they had in the university library, buying books. It, there was no online at the time, so it was mainly the university library and sometimes ordering books from the bookstores. And ever since, I've just read everything I could get my hands on on training and periodization. And I had my first coaching job in 1993 with uh, world-class triathletes. And so you've worked with a pretty wide range of athletes, correct? Yes, 27 different sports total, ranging from a one-hour consult for that particular athlete to individualized training programs for seven years. So for those 27 sports, there's a very wide differentiation in how much I worked with those individuals. Do you have a favorite sport to work with? Overall, you'd say from a strength and conditioning perspective, the more the strength and conditioning matters, the more you can see the results of what you do. So for example, one of the strongest experiences I've had was from working with a, a Danish world-class wrestler who, when I started working with him, he had won silver in the world championships twice. And he wanted to get better at lifting his opponent off the ground. So that particular moment in wrestling and he had been using barbell power clean so far. And that obviously is a smart choice. But because we, you can say I started over on a needs analysis, we also looked at the grip required, that grip where the wrestler grabs one forearm with his own wrist. So that wrestling specific grip. And we thought about how can we stimulate that and develop strength in that grip. So because he was a high priority in the Danish sports system, I had a budget to buy sandbags. So he was 74 kilos and we had sandbags made in jumps of 10 kilos from 10 up to 70. So he started lifting a, a 70 kilo sandbag off the ground and not actually throwing it, but mimicking the extension of the ankle, the knee and the hip as he would do in a throw. And three weeks later, he lifted a hundred kilo guy off the mat for the first time. That's awesome. So, I'm guessing the sandbags didn't have handles. No handles, okay. no. Sandbags nowadays, you know, they make it easy. <laughs> Bulgarian sandbags and that, yeah. There you go. That's awesome. Yes, there, there's some yes. companies here in the United States, high quality products, don't get me wrong. Obviously, they've got the handles in it, make it a little bit easier for picking up, cleaning, carrying, stuff like that. But I can mm. certainly see the application of a totally heavy, awkward load applying yeah. to picking somebody off off the ground. So that's interesting. So your specialty, as I've come to learn, is flexible periodization. So before we dive into that, let's just talk normal periodization, just so we're all working with the same definitions. Go ahead and define what periodization is. Periodization, for the longest time, because I had read Tudor Bomber's books, I thought it was some form of Eastern European concepts with very complicated models of alternating volume and intensity and percentages and if you don't have a like a math major, you could more or less forget about it. Huh. But then when I came over here to Canada and I started writing descriptions of our workshops and books, it dawned on me on, on looking it up in the dictionary. And it's really a word similar to categorization, where categorization meaning to put into things into categories like deep plates, flat plates, so on and so forth. Periodization means a division into periods. And if you Google periodization, you'll get sports books and history books because that's really fundamentally what it means, a division into periods. And that all leads into the most fundamental understanding of periodization and the training concept in the sense that it's a strategy for organizing long-term training. And by that, it's meant that the strategy is to take the long period and divide it into shorter periods with different goals. That means target training adaptations, structures, and content of the training program. That's where I think an understanding of periodization should begin. And we're going to take it one step further. 
as most of the listeners will know, is that then these periods should be sequenced in such a way that selected physical parameters are maximized on a predetermined date. So that would be the peaking date. And that's also where periodization becomes different from variation in the sense that there should be a certain order to the periods. It's just not a random order of the periods. They have to come in a certain way, in the same way that you would build a house or build a car in a certain order. Okay, and so I guess taking that a step further, talk yeah. a little bit about flexible periodization. Flexible periodization is, is a system that I've created that have many, many different characteristics. It sprung out of working with both very young athletes being about 15 and way more seasoned athletes being in the early 30s. Combine that with some of those athletes having maybe six months to prepare because they were still very young and the coaches didn't want them to train and develop and not to compete so much versus uh, in the other end of the spectrum, a professional tennis player who really was never in Denmark more than two weeks at a time. So very, very short periods to prepare. So none of the books that I read, they really answered all the questions that I needed to answer in order to create their program, particularly in terms of a need for longer preparation periods. So the flexible periodization method, for example, has a feature is that I can reproduce the loading patterns of any other periodization system. So I can create a linear model if I want, a reverse linear, a nonlinear. I can create conjugate periodization or block periodization, which are, as far as I know, the five major periodization systems that you can find in the literature. Awesome. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 totally. I'm sitting here making notes as we go through. So let's back up a little bit here. What's the yeah. issue with normal periodization? One Normal. of the main main issues that I experienced was that the way that, that the models were described in the books, they require too long uninterrupted training periods, meaning that if you train athletes that don't have those type of preparation periods, you have to quote unquote break the models. And then the question is, what do you do then? Another issue is that many of them are designed for athletes of a particular level. For example, my second book on periodization was for the Danish Sport Federation, and they asked me to review the different periodization systems that are available and to try to be brief. If you look in the literature, linear periodization is said to be for beginner athletes because they don't need that much variation. The daily undulating periodization is said to be for intermediate athletes because more variation is given and that promotes recovery. It's also a system for athletes with a long competitive period because the system doesn't really have any peaking. On the other hand, again, conclusions from the research is that daily undulating periodization is not the best choice for advanced athletes because the stimulus on any one training zone within a week is not sufficient to stimulate further progress. And if you take something like block periodization, it's very specifically for athletes at the international level who have peaks seven to 10 times a year. So that would not be for a teenager, for example, or high school athletes. So any one known system of periodization, so to speak, would be for a relatively limited group of athletes. And that's, you can say, that's not a problem if you work with a limited group of athletes. But if you have the type of background that I have, where you literally, you know, I, I mentioned the range of athletes and conditions I worked with before, none of those systems were a complete fit for the situations that I have experienced and that I continue to experience when I work with athletes. And so I really like to pare things down to the brass tacks, so to speak, and just yes. we're all working with the same definitions. Would you mind running through linear periodization, block periodization, conjugate, and also daily undulating? maybe one or two sentences each, just so we're all working with the same knowledge here. 
do my best. <laughs> so we'll start with uh, linear, linear, linear yeah. periodization. Uh, overall, is characterized by a linear decrease in volume and a linear increase in intensity within one macrocycle. That being said, when I did that literature review, no two studies used the exact same model when they were investigating that model. Daily undulating periodization is done on strength training mainly, and it means that there are three different training zones within the same week. Very often, maximal strength, hypertrophy, and muscular endurance. And then that pattern is maintained for a full macrocycle, for example, 12 weeks. Okay. Uh, conjugate means put together. An equivalent term is conjugate linoleic acids. Gotcha. So it refers to periods with very focused content of training. Sometimes when the term unidirectional loading, so for example, a maximal strength block, so to speak. Does that make sense? Followed by a speed block. Mm -hmm. And the training in that period is supposed to be with such high volume that it creates a permanent disturbance in the body's homeostasis. And then this adaptation is then used in the next block, which essentially is, is the foundation of periodization that one period prepares for the next. Okay. Block periodization is now being investigated a lot. And, and as I'm following the research that might be the model that being most investigated the last few years, I consider the original resource, a book called Block Periodization by a Russian called Vladimir Isurin, because he writes that, you know, he defines the system, whether that's completely correct or not, I'm, I'm not completely sure, but I consider <laughs> that the original periodization. And I see block periodization as the little brother of conjugate periodization essentially with the same ideas, just with way shorter rest periods, because it's a way of accommodating for a more intense competitive schedule. So it's the same idea of focusing on a very few, up to two or three physical qualities at a time and training them very, very hard, and then switching to something else as you let the body recover from the previous focus of training. So here in the United States, especially in the CrossFit world, I would say that whenever we hear conjugate periodization, we think of Louis Simmons and Westside Barbell. So just a bit of history, do you know who kind of came up with this whole conjugate system? I consider a primary resource, a book, Super Training. And then there's a U.S. coach called Tom Mislinski, I believe his name is, who wrote a, a really good paper on it where he includes some of the resources that are not in super training as well. And the researcher called Verkushansky and one guy before him, as far as I know, is the originators of conjugate periodization. Louis Simmons is very good at clarifying that overall he has the original idea from the Russian texts and then he has refined it and adapted it. Uh, for to, powerlifting, obviously. For powerlifting, yeah. Awesome. I think that one thing that's worth saying is that in my perspective, the way that in the website system they sequence the exercises, that is in alignment with, in my understanding, the original idea of conjugate periodization. On the other hand, the Westside system, as I understand it, they use all three fundamental training methods within the same week. So maximal effort method, repeated effort method, and a dynamic effort method. And in the way that I see it, that has more variation than the original thought with conjugate periodization is because the, the key term there is unidirectional loading, meaning a loading with one particular emphasis, but with different methods and means is the phrase from super training. So disregarding that, clearly from the point of view and sets and reps and intensities, 
the Westside model has a lot in common with daily undulating periodization with three very different training zones in the same week. So one thing I've always been interested to learn is, so the max effort, repetitive effort, and dynamic effort, is that something that's unique to Westside barbell conjugate periodization, or are those just three methods of training that you can apply towards just about any training goal? Any training goal, they are I learned about it in Vladimir Sessioski's first book, Science and Practice of Strength Training, the first one I'm familiar with. And it was described as three different ways to achieve maximal tension on the muscle tendon unit, where the maximal effort meaning to be use maximal weights without regard for the speed of execution. The dynamic effort method is to use sub-maximal weights, but lower and lift with the highest possible speed. And the repeated effort method is to use sub-maximal weights to failure or near failure. But overall, three different ways of achieving maximal tension on the muscle tendon unit. It's not tied into any system or any model at all. You can use gotcha. that with any form of training. And so just as an example, like a bodybuilding program would be very high in repetition effort, probably zero yes. dynamic effort, and maybe some max effort. That's a good way of describing it. Hey guys, Colby here. Sorry to interrupt the action here, but uh, I've got a pretty important message for you. If you've been coaching for any amount of time, you know that helping your athletes become the best version of themselves can be a pretty slow process, but it doesn't have to be that way. What if there was a framework of coaching? a goal achievement operating system, if you will, that improve the speed, consistency, and effort at which your athletes achieved their goals. Well, as it turns out, there is. It's called deliberate practice, and the research and the record books suggest it's the secret sauce behind the world's top coaches and performers. Here at Train Heroic, we believe in the principles of deliberate practice so much, we wrote a book about it, and now we're giving it to you for free. Head over to trainheroic.com slash practice to download your free copy. Just imagine what your gym, team, or business would look like if all those involved became the best version of themselves. Pretty insane, right? Download your free copy today. Head over to trainheroic.com slash practice to claim your copy of Lift. Correct your coaching and reach past possible with deliberate practice. Back to the action. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit. So we got a high-level overview. We kind of got into the weeds there with four different periodization methods. So what are some arguments that support the use of periodization? Because I know that obviously in the CrossFit world, it's <laughs> all about constantly varied. As long as the intensity is there, you're good. And so I'd like to hear the other side. Why would an athlete or a coach want to periodize their training? I think it's fair to start with and give credit to all the researchers that have tried to help us coaches get information on it. So that overall, the research concludes that if you conduct program beyond four weeks of training, then these programs have to follow principles of periodization in order not to experience stagnation in the results. It's a little bit of controversy over that because there's a British guy called Keeley who believes that these studies don't really prove anything other than variation is important. So that's, you can see, the state of the literature overall. I personally believe that maybe if you look at the principle of accommodation and the general adaptation syndrome, and then one more factor, that they are very, very strong arguments for having different periods in the training. The principle of accommodation is also described in the science and practice of strength training. And if you imagine a coordinate system, a graph with training time and training load on the horizontal axis and performance gains on the vertical axis, and then think about it this way, and, and I often ask this question when I teach our workshops. 
Have anyone ever tried to start a new program and make really good gains in the beginning? Almost everybody raised their hands. So that's the beginning of this curve. You start on a new program and you make really good gains. And I say, have everybody ever then tried that after a few weeks, you tend to reach a plateau. You may even experience overuse injury. Almost everybody also raised their hands there. And that's the right side of the curve because the curve shows that as you perform this particular program or combination of two or three programs like one day, Wednesday, Friday, gradually the performance gains taper off. And it has to do with, as the law states, and that there's a decreasing response of a biological system to a constant stimulus. So when we repeat the same combination of programs over time, it loses their effect. And that's what's behind the saying that the best program is the one you're not using right now. <laughs> I've never heard that one. I got that from Charles Staley. There you go. I like that. Yeah. I've always known the best program is the one you can stick to. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's another good one. I think that's more more so like accountability and actually doing the thing, right, versus adaptation and accommodation. But anyways, anyways, continue. I agree. So now you are at the right side of this curve and you reach the plateau. Now Einstein's definition of insanity applies. Insanity, as most people have heard that, is doing the same thing, expecting a different result. So as you reach this plateau, naturally you would want to make a change to one or more program variables in order to stimulate further progress. And this is where this change should be systematic. So let's say you are in a hypertrophy cycle and after three weeks you plateau and you haven't really gained any hypertrophy. So what you want to do is you want to tweak the program parameters. For example, let's just say you're working squats. You may switch from a front squat to a back squat or change the stance or change the tempo or change the range of motion. So you're still working on hypertrophy from a slightly different angle. But overall, the principal accommodation supports the need for different periods because as you reach this plateau, after a relatively short period of time, you need to change the content and the structure of the training and that gives you a new period. Then the second main argument is that the general adaptation syndrome, which is described in most certifications and most textbooks and was originally a model for how the adrenal responds to stress. And then again, if you're looking through the books, some sports doctors found that the athletes respond in the same way to training. And again, I think most people have experienced something similar. But there are three stages in the general adaptation syndrome. The first stage is considered the alarm stage. And that's what the body goes into when it experiences a new and stronger form of stress. So the example I give sometimes is that if I want bigger biceps, it's not enough I curl my pen because it's not initiating any alarm stage. I have to curl substantial weight. So overall, you can say the training stimulus have to be strong enough to initiate the alarm stage. Then the body goes into the second stage, which is called the resistance stage. That's where you actually get better and the body adapts. And the body needs a certain number of sessions to adapt to that particular training stimulus. And that means that the training stimulus should be maintained throughout the resistance stage. And that's where it becomes important not to create variation too soon and that the variation you create is systematic. So if you, one of the things I, I sometimes hear trainers use the phrase, mixing it up, we like to mix it up, we like to throw things in. And I say that that's a red flag phrase. Because if you start a new program and then you mix it up with something that is somehow unrelated and don't take the body in the same direction, then it literally corresponds to start walking in one direction, then turn around and walk in the opposite direction and keep doing that. And after a few weeks, you have covered a lot of ground, but you're exactly where you started. 
So that makes me think in the CrossFit world, the whole mantra, right, is constantly varied, constantly varied, constantly varied. And so you get a wide range of exposure to different loads, movements, skills, time domains, etc. But you <laughs> never really get prolonged exposure to that. And so I think we've seen the CrossFit community evolve even to run structured strength training cycles where eventually they'll run like a five by five, a five, three, one, whatever. And that is, I guess what we're learning here, the general adaptation syndrome is that exact framework behind why strength training works. It just makes so much sense. Yeah. Thank you. And the last stage is the exhaustion stage. So that's where you giving up high volume and high intensity for a period of time. And, and there's some support in the literature for three weeks, which most people that I ask, they find that from their own training, where you start feeling that what was easy the week before now becomes a struggle. You may even find that the loads you can use go down. And that's where it's time to remove the training stimulus to take an active rest week. And some people ask, you know, is it supposed to be a week? No, it's supposed to be until you're rested again, whether mm -hmm. that could be four days or it can be 10 days. It's supposed to be until you're rested. And then a note on that, some of the advanced model, including conjugate periodization, which uses the way of loading that's called concentrated loading. They purposely detrain the body. So they train you down into the ground. But then when you take the recovery, the supercompensation is going to be greater than with like a regular distributed loading. So you can say you, you really create a stronger disturbance in the homeostasis is the way that is described. And, and I used that word before. So you think of a wave, you literally make a larger wave where you train harder, you deplete your resources and performance more than you recover, and you gain more than you would have done if the wave hadn't been as large. Charles Poliquin wrote an article about something similar where he said when he came to a particular summer camp with a team, the way he knew who would make the team was the one who sat and cried after resistance training because they had been training so hard that they were literally had trained themselves into the ground, implying that then they subsequently would recover and be ready for the season. Interesting. How can a coach know when it's time to deload, when it's time to back off a little bit? I think the most obvious way is look at performance. If the performance starts to go down, then it's time to deload. Another way is literally asking about exhaustion on a scale of one to seven or one to five. There are studies to support that, that if the regular is three or four and exhaustion starts to approach seven, you can taper off. Then there are also measurement tools, which I haven't looked at a little bit at this point in time. One of them being the concept called Omega Wave. I also believe that a guy called Joel Jamieson have something that where he measures yeah. Bioforce. Readiness. Bioforce. Bioforce. Okay. Yep. I haven't looked at it at this point in time. So there, depending on preferences and availability, there will be more technological methods to look at it. Okay. And so some arguments for periodization so far, we've covered principle of accommodation, general adaptation syndrome. Was there a couple more? Yeah, two more where... If you look at a topic and say, okay, when we look at this topic, we see there's a natural sequencing of periods. I can give you an example. One of the principles in the flexible periodization methods is to develop flexibility before strength, speed, power, and endurance. An example here is someone wants to squat to parallel, but when they try to squat to parallel their back curves, they get a kyphotic low back, which most people will agree that's a danger. It's a contraindication for squats at this point in time. Then this client athlete will first work on the necessary flexibility so the back can keep straight to the desired level. Then this person can start to load the squat. 
you see just the way that we talk about it tells us that there will be different periods. There's a period where flexibility is emphasized. It doesn't mean that there's no squat at all, but flexibility is emphasized. And then when that is developed to a certain level, then strength can be emphasized. Okay, gotcha. And another example from speed and endurance training is that speed training, for example, to be effective requires higher readiness in the nervous system. People got to be rested because otherwise they can't run really, really fast to their full potential. On the other hand, if you want to develop anaerobic glycolytic capacity, like a speed skater or a 400 meter runner, that type of training requires a lot of fatigue. Fatigue in and of itself is a stimulus for progress in this case, meaning that we tend to say, as you speak about this topic, we say, okay, these two types of training needs to be separated. So again, we look here at different periods of training. That's exactly the next question I had. I've always wondered, is there types of strength training and types of conditioning that you should entirely avoid putting in the same session, in the same cycle? Or maybe a better question is, are there types that go together and kind of assist each other, if that makes sense? I think the most well-known and maybe best researched types that go together is a heavier lift preceding a more power-oriented lift what sometimes called complexes that relies on what's referred to as post-tetanic potentiation. So the heavier lift will somehow tune the nervous system so you can express more power in a jump or in a snatch and in a clean afterwards. There's also some indication that resistance training following low intensity endurance training enhances adaptation to the endurance training. Interesting. On the other hand, what I have studied so far is that if you do high-intensity interval training, either right before or right after resistance training to develop muscle mass, you turn off the molecular signaling to develop muscle. But what we're speaking about here is the whole topic of concurrent training, meaning training more than one quality currently, so very often in the same week. And just last year, at least seven or eight studies came out, and there's the studies at this point in time I haven't, I haven't studied yet. They are on my list. So it's an area that's, I would say, changing and developing at this point in time. So that definitely goes against the conventional wisdom of do your strength training, then do high-intensity intervals or cardio after. So what you're saying is that high-intensity conditioning could actually be detracting from hypertrophy. Definitely. I would almost put my head on the block for that one. Interesting. But what has to be kept in mind, what the goal is. So for example, the tables completely turn if the goal is fat loss. Right. Then it's like, okay, well, that's the goal is to get leaner. It makes sense. Yes. So in a hypertrophy cycle, is there a type of conditioning that would assist that? You just have to separate it. If you look at the literature I've looked at, say it's about six hours. For example, the, the most demanding training in the morning, and then six hours later, you can do the conditioning. And there definitely are types of conditioning that in and of themselves can stimulate muscle mass. So for example, a lifting-based high-intensity interval training can in and of itself stimulate muscle mass. Okay, gotcha. Awesome. I've got so many notes down here. Let's keep chugging on. What's the difference between periodization as a principle and maybe some examples of real-world periodization in practice? So periodization as a principle is what we spoke about earlier. It's the way you organize long-term training by dividing it into periods. It's a very flexible concept, but also you can say there's a long way from saying, okay, I understand the principle of periodization. I understand that I can take this long-term period and divide it into periods, but then how do I do that? And then the answer to how do I do that 
then there's the different methods of periodization. For example, the linear, the daily undulating, so on and so forth, as we spoke about before. And then there's a lot of decisions to be made to take periodization from, I get the principle to, okay, I have a training program. So can periodization be applied without having like a written training program? Yes, for sure. You can literally just ask your athlete or client or yourself and say, okay, what have you been doing previously? And you may understand this as a hypertrophy parameters. I'm just saying something, five sets of 10. And the clients have made really good gains for six weeks, but now it seems that I reached a plateau. Okay, that's cool. Because you know, as a trainer, the principle that hypertrophy comes before maximal strength he said to this athlete, why don't you try and do five sets of five for the next six weeks and you adjust the load up accordingly? It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. So with one sentence and a two-minute conversation, you have a no written training programs. You have applied periodization for this particular person. Another, probably a little bit more radical approach, and I'm not sure it will always work, but it might be easy to remember, was given to me by a coach called Chad Waterbury. He says, reverse the sets and reps. So let's say you've done two sets of 10, go to 10 sets of two. If you just eight sets of four, go to four sets of eight and so forth. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when would you apply that? So that would be a way of creating a new period. If you don't think about what that results in, but you just switch the numbers and don't really think about how that changes the training, then it might be not as efficient, but it's a more rememberable way of applying periodization without a I've noticed training. that. I've been, a, I've been a big fan of Chad Waterbury for a long time. Okay. He's probably one of the very first coaches I read, actually, okay. when I was in college on teenation.com. And I noticed in his programs, he would literally just switch the sets of reps. I was like, I don't understand that, but all right. <laughs> Sounds yeah. good. Now it's cool to kind of connect the dots. So when it comes to finding the quote-unquote best periodization model. I've read before, I think on your website, you think that's kind of the wrong question. Yes. What's, what's a better way of figuring out what will work for this goal? You've got to understand the previous training stimulus that the athlete has been exposed to and how they have responded. And then there can sometimes be value in literally changing the periodization model. So six parameters, one of them, and maybe the most foundational one, if the system is based on parallel or sequential development of physical abilities, and what that means, if you look at the literature, is that the sequential systems, they focus on a maximum of two or three abilities at a time that they try to develop. For example, it could be maximum strength and speed, so that would fit that. On the other hand, a parallel system might say, okay, maximum strength, hypertrophy, speed and endurance that brings us to four abilities. And the difference is that a younger athlete, I mean 12 or 14 and maybe even younger, they don't need as much of a stimulus on any one ability to make progress. And they need a more varied development as a base. That's the argument for beginning a career with a parallel development. Then as this athlete becomes more advanced, and have trained in several years, they would need a stronger stimulus on any one quality to make further progress. And that means that you can no longer have the same amount of abilities in the program because you literally don't have the time and you don't have the energy. And some of the abilities are also going to literally work against each other that we talked about before. And that's when you switch to a sequential model. Okay. The next thing is the way that variation and contrast is used and I mentioned before, it's very much 
if the variation is within the same week of training, like with daily undulating periodization, the strength day, the hypertrophy day, and the endurance day, or the variation is more between blocks of training. So three weeks where everything is geared towards hypertrophy and then another set of weeks where everything is geared towards strength, for example. Okay. You see that there are two ways of applying variation and contrast. Yeah. And a large parameter is then if when you change, is the change large or small? So when we work with, you can say the quote unquote average person is enough to just make small changes that stimulate progress. But sometimes if a CrossFitter have really trained a lot and requires a lot to go to the next level, what is sometimes needed is large variations to literally shock the body and initiate that alarm stage without getting injured, of course. Okay. The third main characteristics is the pattern for changing volume and intensity. And three major patterns is the gradually increasing intensity and gradually decreasing volume. And another pattern is a gradually increasing volume and gradually decreasing intensity, which is a good pattern to develop muscular endurance. So performance-oriented endurance, for example. And then now when I say linear, gradually, that could be strictly linear and there could be waves within it. So there are waves within the week, but they stay within the same training zone. So that's a key differentiator when you look at variation within the same week of training. Do we go between different training zones? For example, do we cover 85% of 1RM on the strength day and do we go all the way down to 65% of 1RM on the hypertrophy day? Or do we stay within the strength zone and say we have two strength days? One is 80% and then day two is 85% and day three is 90%. Do we see both examples as variation within the same week? But one day has it in within the same training zone and the other example covers multiple training zones. Gotcha. And the very last aspect of changing volume and intensity we also mentioned before is the pattern in such a way that a large part of the volume is early in a macro cycle and then there's a markedly recovery that's what's called concentrated loading. Or is the volume distributed over the whole macro cycle that's, that's what's called distributed loading. That's described very well in super training. And the very last thing that's important is that at any level of the program, whatever we do as coaches should follow the principles of auto-regulation, meaning that the program should take into account the varying rates of progress since the last session and various rates of daily readiness. But you know that regardless of who you work with, you can't predict their progress and you can't predict their readiness. That's a little bit in contrast to some periodization models, you know, probably seen the ones where it begins with taking a 1RM and then, you know, week one, do three sets of six with 65% of 1RM and then it goes up from there with gradually increasing percentages. That's an example of a model that's not auto-regulated. Then there's various ways of creating this auto-regulation. One of them, for example, maybe one of the most well-known ones is to provide a repetition bracket so for example, you say eight to 12 reps instead of saying 12 reps with a certain load. Makes total the, way, sense. the way that that is often used in the flexible periodization method is that we have a number of repetitions corresponding to the strength quality. And then the number of repetitions is fixed. So, it says, so the set is 12 reps. And then the instruction is to do one repetition at a time with perfect form and the awareness of being strong. 
if any of those two things changes, if you can't keep up the form or you lose the awareness of feeling strong, then you take a 10 to 20 second break. That's the cluster principle. You can take breaks anytime you want. As long as you can start the next cluster with perfect form and the awareness of feeling strong, you keep going. If you can't start the next block with perfect form and the awareness of keep strong, you take weight off 5%. So maybe just five pound plates. And then you keep it up like that until you have the 12 reps. When you can do the 12 reps, and that's one of the progressions we use, when you can do the 12 reps with no breaks, then you increase the load. So that's a major pattern. And that's a way of applying auto regulations because we allow the breaks and we allow to take weights off. Gotcha. As I see it now, those are the four main things that characterizes periodization systems. And then these two, now we spoke about six. These characteristics, they would then lend into training athletes of a certain training age, something we covered before, and it would lend to training athletes with certain competitive schedules, something we also covered before. Awesome. This has been super detailed and super in-depth, and I got so many notes here. This is, this is fantastic. So for my listeners who want to get in touch with you, Karsten, how can they do that? Via our website called www.yes2strength.com. That's contact information, email or phone number. Yes2strength.com. How about on social yeah. media? We're on Facebook. And I think if you Google either my name or yes to strengths, we come up also on LinkedIn. Awesome. And so you do courses too, correct? Yeah, we do courses. So we teach the flexible periodization method as a four-level certification, which each level consists of two days of teaching and one online course that corresponds to one day of teaching. And currently we have level one online and later this year we'll have level two online and next year level three and level four online as well. And that literally teaches the whole story of the flexible periodization method, so to speak. While each level gives directly actionable tools, you can say the story is gradually built at the end of level four, the trainer will be able to use the whole flexible periodization method. Awesome. And so, you know, one goal of this podcast is to help coaches, young, old, experienced, brand new on their journey to becoming the best version of themselves. And so one question I like to ask is, please share with us a example of a goal that you failed to achieve and what you learned from that experience. Big time gear shift right there. Mm -hmm. In terms of strength and conditioning, I've had a very fortunate career, but on a more personal level then, I was not in a relationship with a woman until I was 37. And I was not in a relationship with a man either, just to make that clear <laughs> and avoid confusion. <laughs> and obviously, when you, at, at that age, you, you know, wonder what's wrong with me and why is this not happening? But then at 37, I met my now wife and we both know that this was meant to be. We have a phenomenal marriage. So you can say maybe the lesson is if it doesn't happen at the time, maybe it's not the right timing. Maybe it's going to happen later. And, like that you were just holding out for the right one. Yeah. And you can say being patient because ultimately, I don't know how much your listeners are into this, is that the nature of the universe is that it's holographic. It means that everything exists in the present moment. There's a book called The Holographic Universe that describes that very neatly and a book called The Field. So our perception of linear time is really not in full accordance with the true nature of things. So we sometimes want things to happen in our perception now, but that's been one of my lessons is just relax and keep in mind that the true perspective is not linear time the way that we typically think about it. 
if I should say what I've learned of it is maybe it's not the right timing. And this described in, in several books on spirituality, things happen with the right timing sometimes. And it did in this case. That's awesome. Well, that was by far the most unique answer I've ever gotten. They're typically, uh, I didn't win a football game or I didn't achieve a back squat or whatever, but that was really good. Very unique. I loved it. That was fantastic. Okay. Thank you, Colby. Fantastic. All right, everybody. So this is uh, Karsten Jensen. Connect with him at yestostrength.net, founder of the Flexible Periodization Method. Karsten, thanks for the time, my friend. You're welcome, Colby. My pleasure. All right, guys, there you have it. Everything you need to know about periodization. Thank you so much for listening. Real quick, before we wrap this thing up, I want you to close out this podcast, fire up your browser, type in www.trainheroic.com slash practice so you can download your free ebook on deliberate practice, the ultimate goal achievement operating system. Seriously, do it now. You won't regret it. That's all for today. See you next week.